I think it goes back to what's cool about printmaking. Printmaking teaches you economy, how to be smart about engineering an image, get more for working less, and the multiple does the same. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. But we all know those products do not use themselves, and that's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Miles Calvert. This cheeky Canadian uses his wit and whimsy to make every demo as educational as it is fun. In his personal practice, major bodies of work has included massive installations of screen-printed pieces of toast and the idolization of British celebrity culture. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel and see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. The small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak's two favorite tools are his Watatsuwaru Sankakuto 3mm V-gouge and his Josuai Maruto 1mm U-gouge, both from McLean's. But you don't have to take our word for it because these tools speak for themselves. So head on over to McLean's at imaclean's.com to find your new favorite tool and keep on carving. This is a special episode, print friends. It was recorded while I was in residence at the Institute for Electronic Arts at Alfred University. This is the second in a three-part deep dive into the Institute through the artists who teach at the university and an exploration into the ways in which technology intersects with contemporary printmaking. My guest this week is Kathy Veda. Kathy is an artist and clinical professor of art in the School of Art and Design. We talk about her practice for the last decade of painstakingly creating hand-formed sculptures of snow and ice and the process of documenting them, how her MFA in printmaking evolved into this practice, what it's like to have a practice so reliant on the weather, and how she's been forced to adapt as our winters get warmer. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to weather the storm with Kathy Veda. Hi, Kathy. How's it going? Good morning, Miranda. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you for braving a Rochester ice storm <laughs> to get here and give us a chance to sit down and have a chat about your work. It is. I am in my element right now. <laughs> you are. <laughs> I feel like it's very appropriate then. Yeah, for your practice, for sure. So before we get into it, would you just Answer the introductory questions of who you are, where you are, what you do. Okay, my name is Kathy Veda, 
And I did my undergraduate work at the Cleveland Institute of Art, and that is where I discovered printmaking. I, I, I was aware of printmaking, of course, in terms of woodcuts, but I had never seen an etching before, and I mm. saw all these people who had drawings on plates, and I loved to draw, and they could make many drawings from these plates. And it was, I'm also someone who likes the physicality of working. And that was, that was a nice bridge between drawing and doing something that actually you physically interact with the surface. So that's where I started. And then I did my graduate work at Indiana University in their print program. Lovely. And when did you come to Alfred? Came to Alfred, and I can't even tell you, somewhere in the, the <laughs> mid to, I've been here about tw- 26 years, so I, I came in about mid-90s. Okay, and had you taught before that and, and done a few other institutional I, positions? Yeah, I began at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, and then taught for several years because my husband moved to Rochester at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Okay, lovely. And then when you came to Alfred, was printmaking a part of your practice at that point? It was, but we were at a big change in terms of computers at that Mm, point. mm -hmm. They had just, and I was leaving RIT, and I had been watching them going through all these different stages, but every time they would invite me to play with the computers, they were so slow, and my reaction always was, I can do it faster and better by hand. Yeah. By the time I arrived at Alfred, the operating systems and the computers could keep pace with the artist. So you weren't sitting around and waiting, and also storage capacity was starting to increase. And I'm talking about going from just like 100 megabytes up to... Um, you know, we were starting to get into CDs, we were starting to get into DVDs so we could actually make big images. And right now my images are around eight gigs. So it is, this was important, but there are things that I do today that were think, get workarounds mm-hmm. in the early days. So I towel my images up to create a higher resolution image because in the early days, that was what you absolutely had to do. The equipment did not, cameras did not take high resolution images. And when we're printing on large format printers, all it would do is just destroy the resolution when we enlarge mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I learned certain tricks that to this day serve a different purpose. They, t- they expand the time within an image. So if you're painting or you're drawing, they are, I've had art curators refer to my work as timescapes. Hmm. And because the images that construct a single image have been taking over a period of time and then I put them together. But that's what we always do in painting and drawing. We look at something and we are recording and it is not instantaneous. It's over a period of time. We, there are certain changes in light. There is ch- certain changes in angles. You're standing there looking at something, your weight shifts, your head moves, you 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 change just just in terms of staying comfortable, you're moving around. So you get a much more relaxed image than you would with a single image shot with a camera where you have a fixed aperture. 
I love that distinction of drawing and, and printmaking, you know, as you say, that they have to unfold over a period of time because, we, of course, we can't instantaneously create an image. And, and that distinction, how in most photography practices, it has that millimeter tiny, tiny scape of a second is what you're seeing and how your drawing practice has that relation to the, the snow cities practice and that it, you do see the folding of time. That's, that's really neat. Were you already interested in snow and ice before you came to Western New York or was that a product of a famously snowy and icy part of the country? Well, in Wisconsin, I mean, I, that was continuous snowpack. I mean, winter came and winter stayed mm-hmm. in my first few years teaching there. And I got into cross-country skiing, and you wouldn't think that that would ever feed back into your art practice, <laughs> but I learned about refrigeration. And I under, it's learned from the snow groomers, you have to put down a base the base is what allows that season to continue is is essentially what they're doing is creating a freezing system they're putting down snow which turns to ice and then all the other snow that comes on top is not going to melt quickly because it's being refrigerated i use that all the time in my practice because i will be starting to make snow and ice days before i'm actually going to use it I will put it into coolers. If the weather bounces way up, I'll bury those coolers in snow and keep it all refrigerated. So they taught me about how to extend time, which was, they're actually miracle workers. I'm always fascinated about the snow ops people. That's so interesting. I've done a little bit of cross-country skiing myself, and I never occurred to me that there was a whole back story and snow scientists out there making it possible I just show up with my skis on a mountainside and go for go for almost it's kind of like a run I don't know how to call it but the the movement obviously has that has that same feeling and it's just it is a really unique way to interact with a snowscape I found because you're so quiet and because you've got the tracks in the snow it feels like you're not disrupting it. And I think that's such an interesting thing for me about snow, because I grew up somewhere where it doesn't really snow. So when you did get snow, it was sort of precious. Mm-hmm. And so you wanted to go out and interact with it, but you felt like you were disturbing it by doing it, that your presence was kind of destroying the pristine nature that you were enjoying at the same time. And with cross-country, you just have these two parallel lines that if you stay in them, I always felt like you get to have your cake and eat it too when it comes to being out in the snow without the feeling of, being too disruptive anyway. Right, and you want that otherworldly experience yes. where, where it just feels, there's something about a, a fresh coat of snow that changes a, a, it can be a landscape you're familiar with and it just becomes something completely different and kind of wild and, and untamed. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I've been in Santa Fe for about a year and I just recently had the first sort of big snow out where I I live and it was just wet heavy snow and it stayed on all the branches for days and this landscape that I've known for a year it was totally different I was seeing trees that I hadn't even noticed on the property that we're on before and with these 
the the heaviness of the snow, the branches were totally changing, and it almost felt almost like a Dr. Seuss world because everything had a twist to it now. And it is a really kind of real life magic sort of an experience to see your to- your world totally transform like that, and then you get to go out and be in it. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And so, when did you start building the? snow cities and what was that first exploration like for you it was a march day Mm -hmm. and i had so i'm here at alford it's a material-based art school i walk through the ceramics area all the time they work with molds they work with they, they transfer form clay into other things and on my counter was this this double pack of compact fluorescents it was the packaging. It was the plat that shell mm-hmm. that was holding that had been holding those two light bulbs. And I'm looking out at a fresh coat of snow, and I said, "I see a mold here." Oh, yeah. And I am thinking, and I've got snow, and I have been trying and trying to find a way into talking about my environmental concerns, and here I have it. I have. The thing that is at the root of all this water, water that is in the form of ice and snow, and when it melts, it can be we can either have too much or it's, we don't have enough of it. And this was the material at the center of climate change. Mm-hmm. So I went out and I just started packing the 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 um, little plastic molds with snow. And I did a little arrangement, tried to not, when you talk about keeping it pristine, it was on the ground and I'm trying not to interact with it at all. I don't want to touch the snow around it. Stood them all up. I got my camera, got my tripod, did, documented it, waited. It was March, so the sun's coming. It's happening very fast. They eventually all fall over. And I go out and documented it again. And I print it. People see it and they make comments. And I actually, though, did not know what to do with that for Hmm. a couple years. It was a couple years later and I was going, this really, there was something really magical about this. This really is touching upon something important. And I started thinking about it. And as we went into, and I had some failed attempts where I was really trying to control the situation, Hmm. really overly controlling a situation. And I was thinking I could do it digitally. And I realized that that was way harder than actually going out and building stuff. And so when the winter set up, I set up a, it was just a small table. It was uh, four feet by four feet. I had a, I think it was like a rabbit pan that I used for a reflecting pond that I put to the front of it. And I had this thing in, in my mind and I was like, can I do this? Can I build this? And I built it in a few hours and photographed it and I got what I envisioned. Mm-hmm. I had this reflecting pond. I had built this architect- architectural structure of snow. And at that point I was like, yeah, I can do this. And that was where it, it started. And some of them are very small. Some of them can be done in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And some of my biggest ones go in a wedge because of the way the camera works off of a tripod 
think theater, that you do a wedge, and think theater in terms of raking the setup, too, that it gets gradually higher and higher. And um, the biggest one, which was, I think, 2014-15, we had an extremely cold winter, went on for months, ended up being 25 feet deep and 25 feet across. And it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And I would have fresh snow coming in. I'd be adding to it. I would have melts. I'd have to rebuild it. And I kind of like that metaphorically, too, about this idea that we're going through natural disasters all the time right now. And we go through this process of saying, we will rebuild. Yeah. And then it comes again. And eventually we're going to get to the point, and we already have. I think that's just kind of basically our policy right now you'll get to a point where it's just not cost effective to keep rebuilding and you keep retreating Mm. and i think that's that right now i would love to have something that was more thoughtful in place but i i think that's where we are you build rebuild and then finally retreat right right so being so much more reactive than proactive to what's causing it it's just like Band-Aid after Band-Aid. Correct. Yeah, rather than going to the the source of the wound, to hold that metaphor a little farther out. Yeah. What were some of the early reactions you got? You said you got comments that kind of made you maybe think about returning to it. What were, when people were first seeing them, what were people saying? They did not know what they were. That Mm. was kind of interesting. I liked that part of it. In the process of actually building it, I think I was freaking the neighbors out. (laughs) They stayed away for a very long time. And I could turn around and I would see the children of my neighbors looking out the window watching (laughs) and, like, trying to not be seen. And it it took a whole winter before anyone would walk up to me and ask, what are you doing? Because I'd be working into the night and I'd have these 500 watt floods and it looked like an airport. And I'm sure they were just completely, (laughs) what is this woman doing? My first neighbor who approached me came up and he said, looked at it and he goes, what if you injected it with food dye? It was really, he was into it. They were into it. But they they were intimidated in terms of coming up and asking what it was for or that this would, and the concept that this would end up in an art gallery. Yeah. Yeah. And and so just so people get a sense of it kind of physically, you said you had this, a final product that, you know, had was like you know, 25 feet. The individual structures, how large are they? Because in, in the photographs, it's so hard to tell the scale, I think, and sometimes. Like they look huge. They look like cities. But in when you're building them, are they a foot tall, two feet? Are they six inches high? What are the the buildings, maybe for lack of a better word, what is their scale? Well, first of all, on the you're not being sure how big they are. That's intentional. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to keep that as amb- ambiguous as possible. And they are, and I shouldn't give this away, but they all are on tables so that I'm working at a comfortable height. Oh, okay? that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because my students think that I was crawling around on the snow That's for hours. That's what I was hours. imagining. No, <laughs> no. They're, so they are, I have actual scaff- scaffolding that is in, I can expand and change the shapes up. So it's at a very comfortable height for me. But think of your, it goes everywhere from um, t- 
tiny little confectionery containers to pie plates. I use oil funnels a lot. I use, that's like one of my very favorite molds. I am now like, I don't know why it took so long to think along these lines, but I will spread out sheets of plastic in the backyard and just throw water over them and then pull up impressions off of that. I use bubble pack. I pour, Mm -hmm. I will lay out bubble pack and pull water, pour water over it and pull those sheets off. So they can, um, I don't know, 14 inches in diameter, maybe 12, 14 inches in diameter down to your yogurt containers and something that is really, really tiny. And I want to use plastic because, and I'll talk a little bit about this because there there was this discussion I knew plastic was always a petroleum-based product. It's a byproduct of, of, of oil. Mm-hmm. But, and we've had, we had big battles in this part of the country trying to keep hydraulic fracking out of this area. And the, the natural gas that is produced through hydraulic fracking actually has not been until recently cost effective mm. it's it's only actually since the ukraine war has that are they making a profit it has been subsidized by wall street but they didn't know have enough places for it to go or a productive way to be using all this natural gas so you're starting to see these cracker facilities being built which extract ethane to make ethylene which is a primary component of plastic and these cracker plants will build, will make 100 million tons of virgin plastic a year. Mm. And it also puts out like 2 million tons of CO2. So they, it's polluting in multiple ways, including all the methane that escapes from the actual wells when, they're, when they are drilling them. So the plastic and greenhouse gases are directly interlinked. So that was also, I liked closing the circle on that, that that really ties back to actually what is happening here. It's not just a pollution thing. It's not just that every bit of plastic that we've ever made still exists, that it's getting ground down to micro levels and we are inhaling it, we're ingesting it, but it is also, continuing to contribute to the problem of climate change and global warming. Yeah. In the time that you've been building the snow cities, have you been able to observe climate change kind of in real time over the years that you've done it? Frighteningly fast. Mm. Frighteningly fast. From, um, yeah, I can imagine in not too distant future, people will look back and say, you made art out of ice and snow in western New York. That is coming really fast. Mm -hmm. I am watching the freezing period, and we haven't had a continuous freezing period this winter, and it could be a fluke. We're going to have that. We'll probably have some other winters that are going to be extremely cold, too. But it's been steadily pushing back, whereas when I first started teaching here, I probably could have have offered a Allen term course over winter break Mm -hmm. where I could have had students building ice sculptures and so on. We haven't had a winter break where we've had it cold enough at night and to be able to sustain such a class. It just hasn't been possible. 
Then it became early January. Then it got it has gotten closer to Martin Luther King Day. And this year it was past the semester starting before I was getting some really, really cold temperatures. Yeah. When I first moved to Western New York, you would have been cross-country skiing all the way through December. Mm-hmm. They, they had nothing this year. They had absolutely nothing this year. So, yes, we're not getting like a month or two of continuous cold, which would have been characteristic of this part of the country. Now, it's still a, t- a small window, but they're seeing this globally. The global yeah. trend is everything is trending up. And so... I think that a lot of times people know this sort of thing intellectually and then they can go back to their lives and they're ignoring it, especially if they don't live somewhere where they're seeing it as pronounced. You know, snow and ice is such a physical, as we talked about, sort of world-changing display of cold weather. But maybe if you live in another place, you might not see it as a marker so much. But with your practice, it seems like it's completely unavoidable. It's it's a part of your art. It's a part of your, I would imagine, day-to-day life. How do you kind of deal with that scariness emotionally with, with maybe not as much of, a, of an out as some people have who aren't living it day-to-day? Well, I, th- I look at the art practice as a documentation, mm. okay? I also find it, so after the first couple years, ISO always has been present with the, the work, but I quickly had a year followed that was very light on the snow, and that's where I became started to depend on ice, and then I started to realize I could build cantilevered structures, I could get, I could defy gravity. I could, which you can't do with snow. Snow is really about stacking and going from a a broad base to a narrower base at the top. Ice, I can do all kinds of things that completely defy gravity. And so that becomes, that's us engineering around a problem, okay? And I like that part of it. I started to realize I wanted to span things. I let me create these structures. So bubble pack's perfect for creating these laced structures that I can build bridges and I can, I can, I have planes now Mm, mm -hmm. where I was starting with volumes and modules and I've gone from modules to have all, having all these new planar structures that I can incorporate in. The work itself is also evolved. So I'm talking right now in terms of of architecture. The more recent work does not involve architecture. More recent work is treating all this as artifacts. And I am starting to build compositions and just starting to put it all together in terms of if you just found it out there, in out side just the remnants of plastic instead it's remnants of these ice forms and how high can I build them and how that's some of the 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 gamesmanship that is going on right now but it is it has gone away from just thinking of it in terms of civilization and architectural Mm. forms yeah yeah for you where does the art live? Is it in the sculpture? Is it in the digital image? Is it in the print? Is it all of the above? It's all of the above. It was, 
So on an overcast day, it's next to impossible to document. It's oh, really, really hard. It's actually hard to work, too. I lose my depth per- perception when I'm out there. It, it very frustrating. I've t- and I've turned around and turned on a 500-watt flood to see if I could get anything. And it's uh, they're absolutely useless. You think it's dark out, but it really is not. And a 500-watt flood has absolutely no impact. <laughs> so the, I'm... So... I'm building the structures, and as I've continued to work with ice, now I'm really interested in light. How light, I always needed it to be able to be able to photograph it, to understand the structures, you need the contrast. But now I like to see how light travels through the ice and what happens with that. So, and I've always liked the sunrises and sunsets. And my husband's an astronomer, and we have lots of times gone out and shot under moonlight. So I try to never miss a full moon if Mm. it's possible. So light's a big part of it. So it's the sculpting. It's how light is interacting in it. It's being there. I mean, it's it's that saying 90% of success is showing up. Mm. Dragging yourself out of bed before the sun rises, be out there and be ready, and, and you can hardly feel your fingers keep going yeah. and, and document it. And then afterwards, and then I always feel so relieved once I download all the images and see them, and I'm like, I have them, they're here, they're safe, nothing's happening. <laughs> and then that starts the post-production part of this, which is putting them together and then I shoot with a um, low f-stop, so things go out of focus really fast. So like a painter, what things do I want to have in focus? What do I want to let go out of focus? And because they're being tiled up in their image fragments, it isn't like there's just one thing. It's happening all the way through the image. And then it also allows me to do adjustment layers so I can change the temperature across the image. So I I remember a grad student watching me do this and they go, you're gonna be so sick when I show you this. I said, there's this, this software out here called Lightroom and Lightroom will change all of your images to being the exact same temperature and the exact same exposure and you know it's it'll make everything that you just shot uniform that isn't uniform and i'm like i don't want that Mm. i don't want that i shoot purposely sometimes over a period of a couple hours Mm -hmm. and those all could possibly end up in the same image and so there's temperature changes going on things are in and out of focus so that that's my very much part of the creative process And then the final step is getting to the printer, and it takes three days or so of me color proofing and trying to do adjustments so that I can get the print I want based on what I'm looking at on the monitor. This was the thing I'm trying to build. Now I got to get it like every other printmaker onto paper. And that we, you're working with a color profile with the printer that should be getting it in the ballpark, but there are there's still adjustments that I care about. I never am of just hit print. I'm mm. there for days and days, and sometimes my tech's rolling their eyes. And, 
but you're, you're because you'll get this color right, but this other color is still off. It's still doing something really strange, and you're trying to get it to behave the way you want it to. Yeah, without affecting the color that's already correct and all of that. Yeah. 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 As someone who, who has a, a practice in what we might think of as like very traditional art making, I know you've, you've taught figure drawing here, that kind of standard traditional way I think people think about artists working, and now working in a digital sphere as well, do you see any kind of transition in the way you think about your art? Is it all kind of a, a spectrum in terms of drawing, painting, photography, photoshopping, coming out of a printer? Or is there actually a distinction in, in what you're doing in some way for you? I think I'm, I look at it as I'm drawing on everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, I, and that's something that I often tell students. I, I tell them, you don't know what life experience is eventually going to show up in your work, okay? You you really don't. You have, and it's kind of gratifying when you start to see many many things coalescing that seem like they're really different, and you know. And then there, I certainly, I mean, I teach a summer school class that is outside, and it's one of the most enjoyable classes I and times of the year for me where I sit outside for three. Day, I mean, three weeks just drawing. Mm. Okay, so I get that back into my life, and I I do want to see some more of that coming back. The big joke being around here that I just haven't had that much source material this winter, mm-hmm. and there I feel that I probably am going to be going back and starting to do incorporate some more traditional work. But I love the idea of the multiple. I mean, that's the fact that I'm using molds. I mean, everything mm-hmm. about this is about multiples, that you can, you have things to choose from, that you are um, reconfiguring, that you have this element you keep refiguring and challenging yourself with, that you can make multiples of it. All of it is, yeah, I, I, that, that's the hook, I think it is. You know, yeah. The, yeah. What do you think it is about the, the multiple that intrigues you in this way? I think it goes back to what's cool about printmaking. Printmaking teaches you economy. Mm. It teaches you how to be smart about engineering an image. It teaches you uh, how to work, get more for working less, (laughs) and the multiple does the same. It is, if you have a multiple, then you can reconfigure, reconfigure, and it can be carried into the next project, and you can use as little or as much as you want to because you have this th- this element that you're working with. Mm, yeah. It, it's a multiplier. It's a multiplier in many ways. Yeah. And so do you think at all about the fact that you spend time in in the cold, as you say, sometimes before the, the sun comes up, creating very precisely objects that are by their very nature ephemeral? You know, I think a lot of times sculptors, it's, it's, it's like, I'm going to make it, I'm going to cast it out of iron, and then it's going to survive the test of time. But that sculpture work, it's probably starting to change itself as you're making it, I would guess. Oh, it is. I mean, even wind, like it can be. Oh, right. Yeah. You have, so you have, you have the ice and you have the snow, and it can, it will change into water. 
but it also evaporates. If I have high, high winds and it's 25 degrees out, my sculpture's disappearing right before my eyes. Mm -hmm. And there'll be some really strange carve-outs that happen with how the wind interacts with the structure. I had a snow sculpture that turned it into like these spirals, like you would see almost like a Dairy Queen kind of spiral. Uh And I remember coming out and how did that do that? And then I started thinking about it was the wind was evaporating the joints and the grooves and it was smoothing it out and it was so yes or things will get smaller and smaller I'm going it's it's 15 degrees out how are you shrinking on me and it's it's the wind so it yeah just like your freezer when your ice is shrinking in there it's cold but it's longer it sits in there the smaller your ice is going to get yeah do you feel like you've had to become something of a ice and snow scientist and as you're talking about like the different ways that about the joints melting and that sort of thing it's just it sounds like someone who's really getting into the engineering of snow it's been fun so people say how do you so all my work also is additive so if you mm-hmm. th- like you think of people who do ice sculpting for most part i think it's it's mostly subtractive they're like using tools right. and chainsaws or whatever and, and subtracting the material mine is all additive and yeah you fi- you have to figure things out i lo- i need snow i found out that if i'm making a joint if i have snow crystals in there and then inject the water that is a much better bond than trying to just inject water into the, the joint. It, I, it, it will set faster, it'll freeze faster, it'll be stronger. I go th- they'll go through periods where we'll have a day, the sun will come out, and we'll have a warm-up. The whole thing will start to sweat, and then it'll freeze again. And then you have this beautiful, polished, uniform surface which is different than when in the morning you put them out. Snow looks gorgeous in the morning. Yeah. It gets, it has, it has refrozen. It gets this kind of frost on it. That frost will make the ice semi-opaque. It'll start to cause an, a little opacity. Once it's gone through a melt, that'll be clear again. So it's yeah, how the environment works on it is is really interesting. You can get some really beautiful effects. It's like. The sculpture two days later is better than the first day. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking of some of the images I've seen where the structures have almost these sort of mushroom caps, sort of, that are so shiny and so smooth and have that just very distinctive forms of natural variation, which I think is so hard for at least for me, if I'm trying to create an image, it's so difficult to get natural variation to look real because I will make a pattern whether or not I mean to. But when you'd really let the elements work on it, it seems like you can capture that aesthetic of of chance. Yeah. Yeah, and going back to the chance part and, and capturing that. So it's documented every single day because ice is really strong it's also really brittle. Mm-hmm. And it does not take much to create a catastrophe that would take like a whole section of like a whole day's work will go. And when it goes down, it doesn't go down in pieces. It pulverizes. Like you, it's like dust. Mm. 
so part of the documentation, it is to see the progress and the evolution. It's also an insurance policy uh-huh. on, on all the work you've done. Because you can get really complacent. You're going along and everything's going really smoothly and you're, you're pretty darn proud of yourself that you've, you're getting really good at this. But you're wearing these, I'm wearing mittens and a heavy coat and all this clumsy garment Mm. is on except for the hand that I'm working with which I'll I I have heaters in my pockets and I have to strip down to a really really thin glove to have good contact but it doesn't all I have to do is forget about this other hand and I can just whack something and everything goes crashing down yeah (laughs) and then you just have to just reset yourself and Go back in. Right, right. And molds stop working as the temperatures change. So mm. you, if like you're packing with snow and it's going well, it's going well, and, and maybe a degree or two has changed outside, now it's sticking. Now you can't get anything to come out cleanly, and you're throwing more over your shoulder that you can't work with, and you just have to put that away, and you have to try something else that is working. Mm. So people ask me, are you planning these in advance? And... No, I have to do what nature gives me. Mm, I I, I want to work at a certain tempo. You don't want to work too slowly. I think that's like everything, like drawing, anything that you do well, you get a working tempo going. And anything that starts to interfere with that or you try to force, I think it, it disrupts the product. I think it really affects it. Yeah, and it sounds like you have to be so responsive, almost like you're in a dance with your environment to get the outcome that you're hoping for you you absolutely are you absolutely are yeah Yeah. oh that's so interesting and so you said as you photograph them over a series of days what's the longest period that that lasts i mean is can you can you do it for a week is it usually just three days a week is a nice amount. Uh-huh. When I talked about that other winter, that on, went on for a month and a half. Wow. Yeah. It, where things were, I just kept changing and kept, kept adding and so on. I really did not, it started to feel like winter's just going to keep going. Mm. And I was actually becoming, so you're, you were asking also about size. On that one, I, and lot, this happens lots of times, I have to have ladders out there to get to the top of certain structures so that you, I'm climbing up there. It was, it's physical. When you walk on snow repeatedly, it eventually turns to ice. You right. have to treat, be responsible out there on making sure you're gonna, your footing will continue to be good. Like when I start to have an ice spot, I've got to start shoveling snow or something so that it's not dangerous. I mean, you, there are many a times where I'm like, you gotta be careful here. You lose your footing, you're gonna knock your teeth out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you have to be aware that you could fall at any time mm. on the long ones. On the long ones. On these short ones, it's pretty, yeah, it's fast and it's over really quickly. And yeah, and I have no remorse on them going down when you oh, were okay. asking about yeah. that. No. It, it, that's just part of it. And I don't have to store anything. I just have to store the print. Right. Yeah, yeah that's the, an upside. <laughs> yeah. And the plastic molds, they can go into like four different clear plastic bags at the end of the season, and that's it. Mm. That's all my working material there. A couple toolboxes and 
yeah, I don't, I'm not needing a lot of space. I've li- always liked that, that I don't feel the need for a big studio at all. I like the facilities here when I have to lay things out and make frames, but as far as, as a big physical studio, I don't need that. Mm. And and with that almost the, the, the kind of minimal space needed, have you ever done these abroad or gone to the North Pole or, I don't know, northern Japan? Or do you want to go and see the snow and ice in other parts of the world? I, I, I really should be doing residencies. I would, I'm certainly looking at a few in Canada. I have done one in the southern Anirondacks. I did a project up there. And the purpose of that really was, they gave me a show, but it also proved to me that I could do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it was planned a full year in advance for a date in February where there were going to be 300 people there at the end of it, and I was going to give a talk. They were there for other things, but there were going to be people available. So I arrived, and we hadn't had any snow, and I get closer and closer and the snow's piling up Mm. and i'm looking at the roofs how much snow they have on the roofs and i get up there and now i'm really concerned how long is it going to take me even to clear a space to work and i arrive and and um they show me where i'm going to be and i'm going do you have a snow shovel and they go snow shovels are for kids and (laughs) and he He said, how big of a spot do you want? And he comes around the building with this big tractor with a snowblower, and he he clears this area like 50 feet by 50 feet in 10 minutes. And and he clears the space for my car so I can drive my car right up because I I brought ice that I had packed in dry ice with me. I brought my molds. I brought everything. And so that night I set up. I got all my scaffolding up. I shoveled snow to create a base because that it's nice to let the base sit overnight and get really firm so you're not pushing into soft snow. Mm. So I did that, and I arrived at dawn the next day, worked all day, and then next morning showed up before dawn, photographed, and it heated up fast that day. And by 8.10, I had all the images for the print. And then it all, it was gone by noon. Mm. So anyone who was in early saw it. But I had my print for the sh- that, that was going to be incorporated into the show. So, yeah. But that's living on the edge. Yes, <laughs> truly. I'm thinking about this. Like the, yeah, making art under duress. Right, and, right, right. And you better make sure all your ducks are in a row before you jump in. Now, I was thinking I was going to be there another day. It was liquefied. I mean, we just, my, my husband came in and I said, get the siphon. We're draining the pond. I keep thinking about, too, about how there are artist residencies in Antarctica. Right. Which I know is actually, strangely, technically a desert. It's just... If it when it does snow, the snow doesn't go anywhere because it's way too cold. Is that something that would be oh, of yeah. interest to you for sure? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And I keep thinking they they like artists to pair up with a, a scientist. So I have looked into these, mm. and I've also looked at ones in Calgary. And I've yeah, I definitely wanted would like to do them. It's just it's been. I'm handcuffed to the project when it's going on, and if I do have the conditions, I mean, I can take a nap, I have food, I have, I can come and mm-hmm. go. Literally, on my last one, it's like, 
waiting for some clouds to part and run out with a fresh battery and be able to shoot off some pictures. I mean, that it's you're having to stay that on top of it. Wow. Because, yeah. it, because things are changing. I've got a question too for you that's sort of about the process of finding something for you as an artist that you do feel like you can return to over many years and do variations on a theme that continue to be rewarding. Because I think that that's something that a lot of young artists are often searching for is how do I find that vein where I just, I'm continually challenged. I feel like I'm growing with every project and then I haven't used up everything I need to say in the first couple of goes. Did you know when you found this process that this was going to be something that you could do for years? I thought it had legs. I definitely yeah. did that. I th- thought there were a lot of aspects to it, but um, yeah, it. But you hit certain places where you're like, "Well, I've done enough of that," mm-hmm. and 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 so now, I mean, I'm all, I'm thinking in terms possibly video. I mean, the video's always been there. The vi- the concept of maybe doing time time based actually time based media with it, but. It's really, I almost need an assistant at that point. Mm, mm -hmm. And it is really hard to have, as I said, you're so closely tied to this. It's really hard to have somebody helping. It's not like we're going to, we're going to go do something for two hours. Can you be here for two hours while we do this? Or sometimes the only time that I can get the ice to freeze is at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Am I going to? So some of that's going on. I foresee possibly, I also want things, I'm thinking about actually building it around me. That would, That's the thing that I, I definitely want to do. So as I've been treating it as artifacts, and then the artifacts have started to be artifacts that I use for building sculpture. That's where it ended last winter. That these became how big can I get this? How mm-hmm. tall can I get it? How, and it starts to have boundaries around it. It, stop, it starts to be almost sculptural. And I said, well, the opposite of that is being in this, and mm-hmm. looking through this, and that was where I was hoping to be this winter was kind of in it and looking through the different layers of ice, and we'll see what that that would be. But I can foresee also having a tripod there, much like we're doing today. And have the the video running and then collaborating with somebody mm-hmm. who would do the editing and and we would extract from the experience maybe a a piece is the way I'm thinking about it. I was thinking about that as you were talking about your process that it seems like that in and of itself to document that would be such an undertaking and I think such an interesting product to see the movement, the interaction with the environment, the shifting of the wind. That's, I mean, that's, that's art right there. Yeah, absolutely. The last piece that I did in February here, it was, so, you know, how they, they collapse, sometimes it can take so long and then sometimes it happens so fast. It was one of those ones where I was out there and it was just all sweating. I mean, it was water is dripping off right before my eyes, like 
just pouring off the structure. And I know parts are going to be failing very quickly. And I was really sad that I didn't have a camera with me because mm-hmm. it wasn't like, well, we've shot nine hours or six hours to watch one little thing fall over type of thing. This was really going quick. Mm. And it would have been, and it was good lighting. It would have been fun to have had. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned earlier about the necessity, perhaps even, of folding drawing or lithography or something into it, as you said, as your days, working days of viability in Western New York get smaller. Have you thought what that would look like? I definitely, I think, I guess I think about it in collage for mm. probably first, a kind of layering up of keeping some of the, I like variety, I, I like variation. So I could see variation through collage of actually piecing something together using different mediums. I think that's where I would like to go, more so than just actually going back to a hand representation of what is going on. I would like to use the different mediums and different materials to construct the image. Mm, mm-hmm. Like I use time, I would use the materials, I think. Yeah, oh, that's really interesting. Do you have any kind of grand projects or visions for it if weather and time and resources were unlimited that you would like to do? I mean, you mentioned the creating the the surrounding, but anything else that if, if you really had no limits, you feel like you could do or go with this practice? Um, I, I would... Sure, I would love to do one that is becomes like performance where I actually mm. were in, where I didn't feel quite the pressure, or I had the fallbacks. The fallbacks could be big refrigeration units, right? That things could be built and then all brought out in in sections to kind of and then put it together in a working time. But I'd like to do something pretty grand that would be kind of public yeah. at some point. Yeah, that could be wonderful. And so is there anything particularly on the horizon that you're looking forward to that you want to speak to as we, we come up on our, our hour recording time here? No, I'm, I'm at the point where I have a lot of material that needs to be go through post-production and get the printing go on completed. And I'm ready to start looking for some new shows is basically what I'm, I'm at that point where I've, I'll have very shortly a lot of new work and want to get it out there. Exciting. So, yeah. So, And where can people find you and see your work out there online? CatherineVeda.com, my website, which probably needs updating, but yeah. Yeah, but there's a lot of material out there on that. Great. I will put that in the show notes. And thank you for letting me borrow an hour of your time on a precious ice day in 2023. Yeah. Well, thank you. You made it very easy. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, 
you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Xiaowen Chen, a professor of printmaking at Alfred University. We talk about growing up in China during the Cultural Revolution when all of the art schools were closed and being a part of the first class let back in on the other side. The culture shock of moving to the US for his MFA, how he got into using digital media in his art practice, and talking teaching techniques with Anne Hamilton. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.